Rami Bagewell is an anchor at ABC7 Chicago, and he started his career in Canada. This is from a live stream that we did, but it also has extra audio about his radio career that wasn't in the live stream. You were telling me about um, this movie that you did. Okay, well, obviously you're Canadian, so it is about a Canadian topic. And what is that movie called? It's called Summit 72. It's a four-part series. It's available online from the CBC online uh, service called Gem, which is hard to get in the, in the States, but I believe we're getting a deal with Apple TV right now. And Summit 72 uh, commemorates the 50th anniversary last year, last September, of the arguably greatest international hockey series that was ever played. The first time, really, that the very best players in Canada uh, played against the very best players in Russia. So for the longest time, the Russians were uh, winning all the Olympic medals and uh, world championships and that sort of thing because the Canadians and, and you know, the few Americans that were there, but the Canadians were not allowed to ice their professional teams because back in those days, professional athletes weren't allowed to be um, in the Olympics, in the world championships and so on. So they finally got it together as a matter of diplomacy, as a matter of settling this argument once and for all. And it turned into this epic uh, good versus evil, uh, capitalism versus communism, right versus wrong kind of political proxy fight over essentially eight hockey matches. And Canada was supposed to win it quite easily. Uh, and they got their uh, butts handed to them in the first few games because they completely underestimated their opponent. And it turned into the event that essentially helped the game of hockey really modernize itself. And also for, for Canadians uh, to see their, their country in a, in a much more global light. It's a very parochial place 50 years ago. Now it's a lot different. So it was kind of using hockey as a vehicle for ex expanding on and understanding uh, really how the country has changed after 50 years. And um, what do you mean it was parochial 50 years ago? Well, it was more parochial in the sense that it was, you know, it was smaller. The population was much, much smaller. It was much more insular. It was far more focused on uh, on an economy that was all about extraction and, uh, and, and resource management and not really about value added products and services as much as a modern economy really needs to be. Uh, it was it was still in the throes very much of trying to identify itself as a as an independent separate country, not only from Great Britain, but from the United States and trying to manage the whole French and English character of the country. And what is what is this new entity going to be essentially about? Is it really a new Western liberal democratic uh, independent state or is it just some sort of a conglomeration of old historical patterns that are just have led to a bunch of people kind of living together so in that way none of those those broader questions of you know what does it mean to be canadian had really they're only starting to be really discussed and uh and fleshed out and now 50 years later i don't think we have any perfect answers to any of that stuff but it's a lot more the the debate around it is a lot more has a lot more detail okay because i remember i, I lived in japan many years ago and i knew somebody who was from canada and she said what was happening so this is back in the early 90s she said what was happening at that time was a vertical identity going on. What, is that true? Like uh, back in the 90s? Yeah, yeah very much. Um, in the 90s was the last gasp of what people may remember something called Quebec separatism, this effort by the province of Quebec to really hive out and carve out itself as a separate country from Canada uh, had its final, uh, we like to say its final kind of expression in 1995 and the years leading up to 1995 where they had a referendum as to whether they would really separate or not and um 
and so the 90s especially the early 90s were fraught with this 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 uh this debate who are we what are we what uh, you know how french are we how english are we are, have we got laws and regulations in place to be able to help people be the kind of people however they want to be what language they, do they want to live in what cultural traditions do they want to have and when you talk about vertical what was happening to the country was it was really divided previously on a french and english basis then it was by the 80s and 90s, it was far more divided on a rural and urban basis and kind of a, uh, a moneyed and non-moneyed kind of class thing. And kind of like what's going on in the United States very much in terms of uh, so many people who feel outside of the of the growth economic framework of America. That's kind of what, what was happening and uh, continued to happen in Canada. And I would say now it, that's the real split. It's a rural urban split and, and differing perspectives on what the country ought to be because of that. And then you said before, um, 50 years ago, it was smaller, but I mean, doesn't it have like not even 30 million people or what's the population at this point? Yeah. Yeah. Now the population is about 37 million. Back then it was about 15 million. So it's, you know, more than doubled. Uh, my hometown, Toronto, um, is a megalopolis as big as Chicago nearly. In fact, the city of Toronto is, I believe, bigger than the city of Chicago, but the metropolitan area around it is just a little bit smaller. It would be the fourth biggest metropolitan area in the United States if it was in the United States. That's how big it is. And so with that and, and with a more global culture and the way media works and, and the, the, iconic, the, the iconic nature of brands around the world and, and, and a kind of a global economic structure that we're in, I mean, it's, it's the same as everywhere else. I think for a lot of Americans, they would go there and think, you know, it's not in in some ways it's 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 very much the same as america and in other ways it's 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 different it's but it's profoundly different and it's kind of subtly different you mean are you talking about canada or are you talking about toronto both both yeah it's, it's very different because i've been toronto, to toronto yeah toronto being the uh well I, I i hate to call it the epicenter but i mean everything's there it's where all the money is it's where all the media is it's where all the banks are it's where all sort of the cultural capital of English Canada is is there. So that's where the action is and that's where the power is. So that's where the film festival is, that kind of thing. So um but but Canada writ large has has a lot of that kind of urbanization going on in Vancouver, in Montreal, Halifax, Calgary. It's um it's it's rapidly gentrifying and it's rapidly becoming a much more urban place. Yeah. Okay. So I um I've been to Toronto a number of times and Yes, it is massively huge. Unfortunately, I don't know why they destroyed so much of their old architecture. I think that was a that was something in the 50s. They're trying to modernize. What yeah. the heck? I mean, they always say Canada is more sophisticated than the U.S., but they didn't have that foresight. No, they kind of got into that. They didn't have the sort of the urban renewal piece that was driving it. It was more, I think, development and land and and cars and the supremacy of cars and how do you get people around an urban landscape? And but the funny thing is that that when you know when I was a little kid that that whole headspace started to be challenged very sharply. In fact, there was a there was a famous expressway that would take you from sort of northern Toronto and where the main airport is. So just imagine in Chicago going from O'Hare down to down to downtown. Um, and there was what you have is the Kennedy. What we have here is the Kennedy Expressway. Well, they were going to do a second one, kind of like a, another Kennedy Expressway, that same angle, same whole thing. But that was going to cut right through a whole bunch of neighborhoods and old, old neighborhoods. And 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 people rose up and stopped it, stopped it cold at the provincial level, which is the same as the state level. And uh, it gave birth to a whole city renewal philosophy and, uh, and an academic rigor around that that was personified by a great thinker named Jane Jacobs, who is 
considered to be, she's I think in her mid nineties now, considered to be one of the greatest thinkers on how cities grow and evolve and how do you make them healthy. Uh, she came out of that movement and is still changing cities around the world. So Toronto was at the front end of trying to make sure that a city remains a collection of villages rather than what it was turning into, which is what you talked about, a kind of an urban um, an urban scape dominated by expressways and cars and uh, and and no walking ways to villages and uh, and shopping and that kind of thing. Yeah, and then when I think of Toronto also, I think of Queen, is it Queen Street that cuts through east-west the entire... That's yeah. inc- I think everybody there, should yeah yeah there there are a number of those things yeah Queen Street's a great street I mean it's just got it's very eclectic very uh very uh, beatnik in certain areas very kind of um uh, it, it's got a kind of gentrification to it in other parts of the city and it runs east to west so yeah it goes close to the lake so it's a uh, it's a fun place to go you'll never run out of things to do people to see things to read and things to eat uh and and the variety that goes with it if you were to spend some time on queen street well part of your experience was also doing radio in toronto right toronto and vancouver yes oh so what did you do there in um in vancouver between 2001 until two late late 2002 maybe early 2003 um Actually, from 2000, I was uh, a fill-in host on uh, on a very popular uh, mid-morning show called The Bill Good Show, probably um, in Western Canada, probably the most uh, well-known radio public affairs program on CKNW. And CKNW is a really well-known uh, legacy station in Vancouver that is uh, pretty strong in terms of politics and, and the news of the day. So the classic thing would be that if there's... Uh, you know, if there's news and if there's a newsmaker, especially if somebody's got a big announcement or whatever it might be, an election, what have you, um, those people, those principals would be on that show with that guy, that that uh, host, Bill Good, who's since retired. And I got an opportunity because I knew him elsewhere um, to be sort of a regular fill in with him. And then uh, that went on for for uh, a few years. And then when I it was really interesting when I got a, uh, a promotion to the National Network on television in Canada that very day that that CKNW had asked me, came up to me and said, well, actually, we've got an evening show for you to have as your own if you want. And so I could actually do t- TV in the late afternoon and do um, do radio in the evening. And I had already accepted this incredible other job. So um, I, I always wonder what life might have been like had I decided to take that. But nevertheless, uh, I worked at that show and, and that station for a long time and then did even fill in work on it once in a while when I was visiting because my in-laws live in Vancouver. And then when I moved to Toronto, I soon hooked up with CFRB, which is equivalent kind of station in Toronto, the uh, ancient old legacy station and um, was awarded a show on Sunday night. So I did a public affairs uh, talk show on, on Sunday night for a, a few years and realized I was working basically seven days a week. And so we kind of dialed it back a little bit. And since then, I've been Working on um, working with WLS Radio here in Chicago on a fill-in basis uh, with a number of hosts, and and uh, I really enjoy it. I just think it's an absolutely fabulous medium, and it's going nowhere but up. Really, why do you say that? Because other people would say that it's not going nowhere. It's it's actually going nowhere. So what? Why do you think that? I think you know there's always a challenge in terms of the, keeping the audience uh, for for traditional technology. But uh, terrestrial radio still reaches people and creates the form for conversation, I think, still unlike anything else, really, in terms of long form, in terms of breaking news, you name it. 
and people are you know, trapped in their cars, they can't watch a visual. Uh, that is critical, and it's critical to um, to the lifeblood of a community to have authoritative voices and places where newsmakers stop uh, on radio so that they can be able to talk to their community. So I, I don't see, yes, of course, there's going to be a shrinkage of the market. There's going to be splintering in the market and in um, the chase of the almighty dollar, given technological advances, always very hard, really hard for talent, for sure. But, but the, you know, the role of radio in our lives, I don't think is, is going away at all. Wow. That's really different because people say, you know, streaming is taking over and, there aren't as many opportunities in radio and, and younger people don't know about radio. Yeah, I, I think all those trends tend to be true, but uh, there still are appointment listeners. There are still people who expect to have a certain voice on at a certain part of the day while they're doing a certain kind of thing. And those markets are big and those those uh, those opportunities uh, are, are strong. So the immediacy of radio, radio sometimes over streaming, sometimes when I'm with listening to streaming i don't know what i'm listening to necessarily is actually happening right now it's that that live component yes obviously most of the time it is but it has to be reiterated i think that it's still being sorted out and uh, again if if uh if businesses in this space are wanting to save money and they want to do things in a, a cheaper way and you know reach a master uh, bigger audience supposedly yeah streaming is there and everyone's trying to figure out exactly what it looks like and how to really make money out of it regularly but linear radio is still there and people are still in and authoritative voices are still out there and i i think it's just it's just fabulous it just kind of soothes your soul in a certain way that other things don't well now back to vancouver when you were on the air in vancouver were you also doing tv yes yeah it was fun it was yeah, fun so and they were a very symbiotic relationship yes yeah, so what was the difference between doing tv were you doing tv news at the time yeah yeah exactly okay, so the same so when you were doing um, TV and radio in Vancouver, um, how did you approach each medium differently? Well, I think obviously radio allowed for uh, longer treatment of, of stories and the longer interviews with guests and immediacy about what was happening in terms of live events and so on. But I, as far as journalism goes, it's still journalism. I still wasn't really necessarily taking a hard position on things i wasn't really writing a, a daily editorial around which a show would be based which seems to be kind of the the model for most talk shows now it wasn't right-wing radio it wasn't left-wing radio it was just radio it was just journalism good journalism it was like a good old-fashioned newspaper in that way and those are the same skills one would be employing on television at the same time so being able to walk that line and being able to attract listeners without being uh, a polemic about it is a real um, challenge and then i think it's really it's a skill and i think that even tempered reasonable people from the from across the political spectrum are always looking for that they're actually looking for an honest broker of information and so so i would do that there and i would do that on on tv obviously as well and uh, and it worked and the, uh, vancouver and toronto those markets definitely have a tradition that's a little different than the American markets, at least back then, and maybe a little less so now, but they definitely had a tradition of being that kind of uh, impartial forum, which is kind of the way it, it ought to be for most talk shows, if you ask me. Uh, now that we've moved into a much more polarized political environment that we're all in anyway, naturally, a lot of the, the a lot of the media outlets tend to, to reflect that just as they chase a buck. Well, you can chase a buck by being an e even-tempered, middle-of-the-road person who's just out there trying to get to the truth of matters rather than have a have a point of view now what's vancouver like compared to toronto <laughs> well it's uh 
that's that's funny you should mention that's a never-ending question in my marriage but my wife is from vancouver vancouver obviously is beautiful um it is a it's a, a gorgeous place to live and uh the scenery is just gobsmackingly something um it is a bit smaller than toronto it's still a big metropolis and it's still um the center of a big region and it's a, and it's a headspace in canada it's canada's west coast so when you think of you know what is what is the difference between new york and la it's kind of like asking that question and and definitely Vancouver's more on the LA side and not just because they actually do a lot of film production there but there's just more of a west coast vibe and the weather's a little bit milder by canadian standards it rains a lot and toronto is is in the center of things and it's where all the headquarters of all the companies are and the financial capital and the media capital and the and the um you know the business capital and uh it's not the political national capital but it, it's pretty darn close it's kind of like the difference between new york and washington in that regard and so so there are a lot of there are a lot of big thinkers there and there are a lot of um there's a lot of money sloshing around there's a lot of deals to be made so they're really kind of two solitudes but they're both big cities and they're both uh magnificent to live in and be a part of because i was gonna, um, I was gonna say that when i think of vancouver i think it's more pacific rim because especially because a lot of people, um, when Hong Kong was turned over back over to China, a lot of people went to Vancouver. That's true, and and the Chinese population, the Chinese mainland population, Hong Kong Chinese population, enormously represented uh, there, and uh, in big concentrated pockets as well as dispersed in the city. But big towns, uh, Richmond is a Richmond is a, a big. Uh, satellite city of Vancouver near where the airport is and think of it as I don't know think of it as um, maybe not Naperville but yeah something like Naperville and maybe not as big as Naperville more like Evanston or something like that just on the border of the city and it is predominantly Chinese so the impact of the Pacific Rim and it being a global port and it having mild weather makes it a, a natural trading post and and that's always been its history. And then um, how long and you did when you did radio there, um, what I do notice about when you do when people do news. Yeah, sorry. Uh, radio news versus TV news. The writing is different. Have you noticed that? Yeah. May, yeah, maybe. But I still think it's that that kind of inverted pyramid. And I still think you're trying to lead with what's the newest stuff that you've got. And you're trying to get at the, um, you know, who's telling a lie and 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 structuring your stories that way. But one thing I learned, of course, in radio news more than uh, I did in TV, especially, is that especially doing hourly is that there's always a new audience. There's always somebody hearing this for the first time. There's always somebody who requires you to be the very best you can be in terms of your own investment in the story, investment in the newscast and uh, and and empathy with the, with the listener. And I think that that translates from TV. I don't find them that different in that way, but you have to sketch a visual in, in radio a little bit more and that's that's where some little different parts of, of your gray matter are, are basically being applied and I, I love that challenge and then when you went to um toronto to cfrb i actually went there some years ago and i interviewed jerry agar there and yeah. there were yeah there was a wide variety of people there um what was it like to work in radio in toronto the center that was that was a real dream come true. I, I my parents listened to that station a lot when we were growing up, and when they were you know new immigrants to Canada in the nineteen sixties, uh, that CFRB station, um, you know, and the people who were on that station were just iconic characters to to that generation sixties and seventies and early eighties. Um, 
in terms of helping a whole new set of people understand what it meant to be citizens of this new country. And they understood it, I think, from a public service perspective, that they had a role to play in terms of uh, helping people understand how the Western society works. But that being said, you know, it was it was it was powerful. And so when I ended up on on CFRB, it was uh, it was something that my uh, my folks were really quite proud of, actually, because they could actually listen to me because they lived in Toronto. And back then there wasn't digital. They couldn't listen online. Yeah, no, no, not. It was sort of starting up, but no, not not the way it is now. Not like just going to a website and bam, oh, you're, you know, listen live. There was no listen live. This was before the iPhone, which, you know, that's when things changed. I and mean, we're going to look back in history and go 2007. That's when that was a real tipping point in society. And then also at CFRB, so you had more of an informational show yeah. over there? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Just like a, you know, seven till 10 Sunday night talk show pick all the guests that you want. I had a part-time producer who would work on it from basically Thursday and Friday and a little bit on Saturday, but um, I had to do most of the producing myself in addition to my television job with CTV National News. And so yeah, it would be stories of the day, a weekend review, what's what's of the week looking ahead and um, some, uh, some, some lots of arts and culture, talking about music and talking a little bit about um, what was happening in terms of the city of Toronto in the upcoming week and, and, um, you know, what are things to do and what places to go and how can you enjoy this place? And, and, uh, we talked a bit of sports as well. And, uh, but it was, you know, the t- time would just whip by. It was just incredible. Just trying to keep track of what's going on and trying to have that kind of summation of a week and, a, and, and kind of a guidepost to what's coming up in your upcoming week. I interviewed one person who did uh, radio in Toronto, but I'm sorry, in Montreal, but, um, is it difficult for Americans to get radio work? Is it difficult? Um, in Canada, um, it just becomes a question of um, of immigration. Yeah, it, it can be it can be tough. It can be it can be tough because the markets just aren't as big, and there are a lot of people who are competing for it. And as we all know, these are all shrinking environments that we're all working in from a fiscal perspective. And uh, it can, yeah, it can definitely be hard. And um, but if you have a reason to be there in Canada, maybe you're you're with a with a Canadian spouse or what have you. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're American or, or Canadian at that point. So they don't care if you're local, like you have that accent, because Americans usually don't have, most of the U.S. does not have an accent like Canada. Well, I would totally disagree with that, because I hear your accent, and I think that it's, you know, it, it's different, and it's and it's That's a different saying. way. Of, so, That's what I'm saying, like, so the listeners wouldn't care that the accent's not Canadian? You know what? Canadians can be sometimes a little sensitive about that with 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 an American accent. I, 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 I'm just trying to think back to a host who who actually was American, but then he came to Canada when he was like in his early 20s. And um, and he was just became this iconic radio guy, Andy Barry. Look him up. And he was with uh, with CFRB for a long time and he did uh, morning drive and then he did the late morning and then he went over to the CBC and he became the main guy on a show called Metro Morning, which for 50 years has been the cbc cbc radio's flagship morning show in toronto and 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 he he was toronto through and through he was as canadian as hockey sticks as a citizen a naturalized citizen and so on but every so often you would hear something about him sounding american and it would be like yeah so what the guy's an incredible arbiter of information so it would come up but it would come up kind of in a I don't know, like a gossipy way. And it, it seemed kind of irrelevant, but people kind of hung up um, once in a while would get hung up on it. So, yeah, if someone comes comes in and they've got a really twangy, nasally Midwestern accent, 
uh, yeah, you're, you might have a little bit of difficulty being accepted. But if you're smart and you're thoughtful and uh, you probably have a, a viewpoint about guns and AR-15s, you'll probably get it. You, you might be able to get someone to listen to you. Yeah. And then also, um, now, what do you do at WLS? You said you fill in. Do you work on Bill's show? I, I, I interviewed him, too, for this podcast. Um, I... I was mostly working in the mornings. It's been, it's been a couple of years since I have done it more regularly. I was working with Lauren Cohen a lot as well. And um, yeah, a couple of, a couple of mornings and um, a couple of drive times when I was doing morning shows here at WLS TV, um, then you, there would be time in the afternoon to do the afternoon drive. But again, it was kind of, it, it was like doing two jobs in one day oftentimes. And that's great. But there's a real limit to that in terms of just, you know, being the best that you can be and having the energy and ensuring that the pipes are working where they, they should be working. Yeah, the prep is brutal because you've got to do all that writing and preparing for TV. And then you've got to do so much prep for the segments for radio. I mean, people right. do it for three or four hours and that's their full time job because they've got to be watching everything around the clock. It's really hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Radio is a lifestyle. There's no two ways about that, especially if you want to be like an informed host and just like a literally a master of ceremonies. You've got to know what's going on, on on several different fronts and you've got to not shy away from your areas of uh, areas where you think you are a little bit weak in terms of your own baseline knowledge. You have to really, you have to meet some of those things full force. And, uh, um, and, and that's, well, that's the challenge of it. I mean, anybody can do a lot of different things. There are easier ways to make a buck in, in many ways, but there's not much that's more fun than radio talk show hosting. Okay, why do you think it's fun? Because you're, you're talking to, you're conversing with interesting people who are doing interesting things, and you have an audience that's choosing to listen into the entirety of the sentence, the, the, the depth of the questions, the, the conversation. You're having a conversation. You're involving, um, you're involving the public, and there's a certain speed to it. But there's also a certain kind of, there's, there's an agenda to it, but there's a speed and a pace that's just right that makes people, I don't know, feel like their time is well invested. And and I, I quite like I like the way the, the medium dances with your imagination. It's a nice thing. And when you were doing um at CIFRB, did you have you had guests right on your show? Oh, yeah. And so was there yeah, any time when when you had a guest and you're like, oh, my gosh, this person is really huge. Um, How do I not be nervous or whatever talking to them? Um, no, no, not really. I mean, you, you know, I think that I've done this work long enough that, uh, what somebody does for a living invariably isn't overly, it's not so impressive that I can't remember why it is that they're talking to me now. I mean, yes, obviously if you meet somebody like, I don't know, Nelson Mandela or, or, uh, or, 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 or a president or something like that, you're going to be somewhat you know, awestruck maybe by the moment or speaking to them, but it's never going to creep into your, into your uh, life. I'll tell you one thing, into your approach, I'll tell you one thing. It tends for me to double down on really trying to ensure those people are telling the truth. I want them to feel like they're coming into something that is going to test them as well. And it's not as adversarial as it would sound, but that if you approach it that way, like I have a right to talk to you. This is why I tell young journalists all the time who who come in to here at Channel 7 and they're working in an internship or something. And then they're being sent out to a, a mayoral press conference and they might feel timid about asking a question. And, you know, who doesn't? Right. But the fact is that you have a right to be there. And that's what this job is. That's what this fourth estate is all about. It's, it's to hold people to account. And if you've got a good sense of 
your mission with regard to that, and you've got a good sense of the brief of what it is that you're talking about, what the subject is that they're talking about, then you have to be ready to, um, you know, if not do battle, be able to create the environment where they are forced to tell the truth. And that's why I keep my eye on. I don't really care who they are. Do you ever do just news on WLS AM? Or is it no, only talk? No, okay. I've never done the like that already. Okay. Only talk, yeah. Uh, I, I just, you know, in, in terms of radio, I love radio. I've re loved it from from the from the very beginning. As a kid, I was one of those people who actually listened to talk radio when they were a kid. And um, and I think it's dramatically informative and really is one of the pieces of the lattice work that holds us together as a society. And it's a, it's an honor always to be behind the mic and to earn the trust of people too, that they'll that they'll listen in. Okay, so obviously when I'm talking to you, you've been in the U.S. for a while, and I notice you're not saying a boat like you did. You avoided saying a boat like Canadians say, but you do have you do have a certain kind of accent um, with, with your vowels. Well, you yeah, you don't sound like Midwestern like annoying nasal vowels like I have and some other people. But when you when you came to the U.S., did anybody did you have did you naturally change your accent or what happened? I, I didn't change my accent so much. I figured that language is a uh, evolving thing and this is what they hired. So this is what you get. Uh, I did become a little more sensitive and aware of um, certain words, especially you mentioned about the, the three big ones out, about and house those. And they come up in newscasts all the time. And I always say to the guys and gals here at, at ABC News, I was like, come on, it's spelled with an O-U. That's like got an owl sound. It's not an aw sound. It's not an ass sound. It's a. It's not a house. It's a house. But I get it. it. That's not kind of what the listener here is used to. So over time, like I said, I think uh, my tongue has evolved a little bit. And but I just think it's still about clarity. It's always about trying to be uh, clear in your thought, clear in your enunciation, clear in your your diction, so that you can communicate and people don't walk away confused and they think that oh well, they listen to that guy's newscast. They listened to that person on the radio and they thought ah, they, they, that was time well spent. Yeah. And so can you just tell us about your tell us, tell me about your um, about your career in Canada, where I would love to I'd love to be able to work there in some way sometime. But is it very, very, very competitive because there aren't many people there? Oh, it's hugely competitive. They're, they're just the number of there's many people vying for these positions of authority and uh the chance to play journalists as much as there is per capita anywhere else. And, and, and the stories are sophisticated, the, uh, the sense of nationhood and trying to figure that out, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this interview, um, still an, an ongoing issue. Governance is a big issue. Government plays a big role in people's lives. And then, and so therefore governance, who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong, criticism around that. It's, 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 uh, it's catnip for journalists. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of focus and a lot of interest in, in in holding people to account, making sure public dollars are spent correctly. Uh, a very low tolerance, relatively speaking, for for corruption uh, and criminality. And so, as a result, it's it's enormously it, it, a, a society that doesn't continually tells it, tell its stories to itself and try to unmask truths and uh, and get towards um, you know pro using the media as a problem solver isn't isn't really going to be moving ahead and that's one thing that's amazing about canada is that there's maybe sometimes to a fault there's a there's a willingness to shine a very critical light on power so that uh, people see power to be exercised correctly and to uh, ensure that those who don't have power 
have access to it and have um, and and have power be accountable to them. So the media plays an enormous role and it's very competitive to to be a part of that. Wait, so if there people question corruption, um, is there like what's the corruption situation compared to let's say Chicago? Let's say let's compare Toronto and Chicago. We know how Chicago is. So what's up with Toronto? Well, you know, human beings can be corrupt anywhere, right? And I remember one of the one of the reasons, this sort of apocryphal story that I have as to why I'm a journalist is I re- I'll never forget the Toronto Star when I was a kid. I don't know, I must have been about twelve or thirteen. They had on the front page of the main newspaper, like the Tribune, they had a um, a long lens shot of a guy who had been who was like a liquor liquor control board officer, liquor license uh, purveyor type of guy. And he was taking a bribe across a picnic table in actually like a brown bag. And they, and the, it was a sting operation between the police and the media got a hold of it and they got the, they got the long shot. And, and it was really showing how, you know, on a low level, how um, in a democratic society, you got to hold people to account. Here was a guy who was cheating, wasn't hurting anyone. There was nothing violent about it. And it was in a park and there was a park bench and the guy was kind of old and sympathetic looking, but he was horribly breaking the law and break and not playing by the rules and, and, and cheating and just cheating. And, and I thought to myself, wow, it's beyond being like the referee, you get to be part of holding people to account. It's kind of like how maybe a defense lawyer thinks sometimes. And I thought that's, that's what I want to do. I want to be involved in those kinds of, transactions and that kind of work and that kind of business. And it really struck me. And now my friend is actually the publisher of the Toronto Star. And I told him this story and he's like, yeah, we got to keep that, that enterprise part of things going as much as we can, despite the economics of having people on staff and the resources to do those things. But as far as corruption goes, yeah, there's corruption everywhere. And you have to, and, and there will always be corruption and there will be more of it if the media doesn't do its job. If, um, if oversight in government doesn't do its job to ensure that that doesn't happen. That's not to say that I have some sort of excessively cynical view of human nature, but, but without the proper controls in place, um, corruption will happen. So it happens all the time with, um, who knows, with developers and the sweetheart deals over land that people know is about to be developed by, by, a, by a provincial government for, for, for housing stock. And so people speculate on it with insider information, all those kinds of things. That's kind of, a, that's unfair. That's kind of corruption as well. There's sweetheart deals left and right. Um, the prime minister got caught up in, in something involving a charity with his family and his family have being on the payroll of this charity. And, and, uh, and, and what did the charity really do for, 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 uh, for poor children? So make no mistake, it's a sophisticated country. And with that sophistication comes uh, uh comes the mulings of human nature when it comes to being dishonest. So there's plenty of work to go around. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis, who's at jeffdavis.com. And I was asking Ravi about accents, and I'll ask him about languages, because I've been into languages for several years. I created my Metrolingua language blog in 2004, and I still study languages, and I still post at that blog. Wait, and I can't get over that your friend is publisher of the Toronto Star. I mean, when I was in Toronto, I saw the building. I'm like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. That's really impressive. Okay, so basically, if you're in the media up there, do you just basically know everybody or what's going on with that? No, I went to school with this guy and uh, and he was always from a very strong business family. So it's more of the business thing for him as opposed to him being a journalist. Uh, Jordan Bitto, very good friend. And they rescued this newspaper, which is critical to 
you know, democratic discourse in Canada, and uh, but was struck by the kinds of financial pressures that the media is in underneath uh, around the world. But in Canada, if you talk about a smaller country, you just, you know, you just don't have the uh, the, the revenue streams to support to support multiple platforms in an age of changing technology the way you might have here. And here, everything's under pressure. We're under pressure at ABC News. I mean, Disney's under pressure. We've just announced all kinds of layoffs and stuff like that. People got laid off in this building uh, yesterday. It's brutal. And um, so everyone's under it, but you feel it a little bit more there. So yeah, I'm very proud of, of, uh, of, of that paper and, uh, and, and the folks who decided that, you know, they, they're going to put some venture capital into it and, and rescue it. I want to get into how you got into journalism. Um, but also what I want to know before that is what did you think of the U S when you came here, when you started working here? And did it match like what you thought beforehand? Um, that's, a, that's really interesting because I didn't know what to think. I knew, I knew that I could do it. And um, see, there's a funny thing in the Canadian, for a lot of, in the Canadian psyche, right? And, and it's kind of weird. It's like that big brother, little brother, big sister, little sister kind of sensibility sometimes. And that is that if you are at, sort of the, you're doing really well in your career you're at the top of your industry you're doing kind of well there's always a sense that that you got to go you got to you got to go apply your trade in, in America and it, it could be journalism it can be finance it can be athletics it can be academics whatever it is you got to go Russell Peters yeah right there yeah, comedy comedy for sure <laughs> comedy for sure um and you don't have to do it forever but but it, it, it kind of becomes a little bit of a mark of a distinction if you if you go and do it and do it well and then you come back and, you know, maybe you've got a couple of American dollars uh, stuffed in your pockets as a result of it. I mean, it's like 75 cents on the dollar, Canadian dollar to American dollars. So there's always that incentive as well. And um, and so I was always kind of wanting to do that. Plus, my dad and mom, they were immigrants to Canada and they always thought, you know, oh, well, they didn't always think, but once in a while, my father would say, oh, you know, I never finished the, the true immigrant journey because I didn't really get to the States like so many of his friends. I'm like, dad, you built, you're a pioneer. You built this other country. It's great. Don't worry about it. So maybe there was a little bit of that. But for me, it's the same game. It's the same intellectual rigor. It requires the same dedication to truth. It requires the same effort on a day-to-day -day basis to put material out there that is truthful and is correct and is uh, is timely and accurate to serve the community. And so I, I wanted to know if I could earn the trust of people in Chicago to tell their stories. That seems to have happened. Thank goodness. Touch wood. And uh, but I always want to just sort of put myself to the test. So how did I feel about it? It's just like a bigger forum, but it's still it's still the same game. Well, also, you're at a top station. I think you guys are what? Number one. And I mean, you guys have been number one for many years in Chicago. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I came from a number one station. I came from CTV National News. Um, I wasn't going to go and be part of some some sort of startup in that regard either. But I knew about ABC News in Chicago and its local reputation, certainly. But um, sort of the ABC Eyewitness News um, brand and, and, and these 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 programs that are in the big markets in America, there's there are eight owned televisions by ABC News in the big markets like New York, LA, San Francisco, Houston, Philly, us, you name it. And they're all number one. And they've all been number one for 30 years or so. And I'm very proud to be a part of that. And and the, one of the reasons they're number one, it's not just that they hire good people and stuff like that, but despite fiscal pressures, they continually invest in 
the news gathering business. So that what does that mean? That means like, you know, good people, smart people, uh, cameras, trucks, good equipment, good editing equipment, the, this iPhone, that kind of thing. There's always there's always enough money for for making investments in the news gathering process. Not to mention, not to say that there isn't all kinds of downward pressure to make this as efficient as possible, save money, make sure that uh, that Disney makes its money uh, for sure. But there is that commitment to the product, and and the way you know it, like the way it works in this business nowadays. I mean, there are ways to do news in a much cheaper fashion, and you can do a ton of news right on your phone. This is 1040p video. You turn it sideways, you can edit it on your phone, and bang, you got yourself a minute and 40 second package that you can do your own stand-ups. And st- in fact, I did a little bit of that during during the pandemic, especially. But this place continues to invest in the, the people and the resources required to do storytelling the right way. And that's why it's number one. And I just get to ride herd on that a little bit. You know, 30 people need to do their job perfectly before I can hope to screw it up. So I'm I'm pretty aware and grateful for that. Yeah, that's true because um, I think people who work in the media, I, mean, I work in the media, but people who work in it, they understand that you do need um, the resources, you need the people doing, you know, being diligent, you need the equipment, you need to be out on the street, you need a lot of things to report successfully. And I know people working in places where resources have been cut or misallocated, that can affect it. So, I mean, we've all experienced that, but okay. So, um, yeah. I just make add one, the number one piece though to that is the people. And I will perfectly honest that this place pays to get the best people. So I don't know how many times I'm out on the street and people will say, oh, I heard this, there's an opening at Channel 7 for this or that, a reporter job, a digital editor job. They pay that little extra to get that person who's that much more motivated. And it, and it, uh, and it pays off all the time. Yeah. yeah, and also I think respect too. It's a pay and the respect. Because in some places they can't pay as well. But if you're respected and your boss is good, I mean, like right now I have an excellent boss. Um, it's a great experience. So. Yeah, yeah. Because we spend all our waking hours together. So might as well be a good experience. I'm not here to waste, waste, you know, you only get one life, right? You don't want to waste it with, with, you don't want to waste it. And and being with the wrong people would be kind of wasting it. But yeah, it's good. It's good to be here. That's great. And then, okay, so how did you get into media? Well, that's good. That's, I, I kind of came at it from a much more uh, non-traditional way. I didn't go to journalism school. I went to a, a fairly well-known Canadian school in in London, Ontario, called the University of Western Ontario, one of one of the top schools in Canada. I got a degree in political science and uh, and with a minor in economics and French. And I was very involved in 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 public affairs and electoral politics and uh, and kind of the that line between academics and and the electoral side of things. So you know, through a little over 25, 30 years ago, that's kind of what I was involved in. And then. I was involved in a couple of campaigns in, in, in Canada, and I just, I just saw, you know, I just continued to see evidence that the real power, as much as it is in, you know, people who are politicians, elected people, people who are senior bureaucrats, the power of how to move a society relies in the story. And so who tells the story and how the story is told is as much a function of the power dynamic as anything else. And I just was always attracted to that. We have a lot of a few journalists in the family. My grandfather was a was a nationally pensioned uh, novelist in India. So there's that there's that tradition as well. And so I just said, ah, you know, I could do this. 
I'm a good writer. I'm a good presenter. I'm interested. I'm curious about other people, which is the most important thing. And so I ended up getting a, um, uh, about 20, over 20 years ago, I got a job as a researcher with the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Calgary, Alberta, like Western Canada from where I was. And I took a 13 week contract at a really, you know, low wage to just start to learn how to be uh, you know, a chase producer getting guests for for an all news station, and then branching out from there into producing, and then into reporting. And I was on the I was on the air, what Christmas of nineteen ninety six, doing midnight overnights from Toronto for on a shift that nobody wanted. And so what happened was I just kept continuing to build my resume and taking every opportunity I could, going wherever I could. I moved all over the place. I took weird hours, so I moved from Toronto to Calgary to Halifax then Vancouver, then back to the national newscast in Toronto, and then Chicago. So you got to take your opportunities where they are. But was your goal to get on the air? Yeah. Okay. And actually, I love the accent in Calgary. So if anybody can meet people from there, listen to how they speak, I like it. But it's so different from American accent. But Oh, Canada's Texas, by the way. (laughs) Okay, that makes sense. Um, But okay, so your goal was to get on the air. So what I mean, did you feel like it was it was going to be difficult or how did you you so it was it was the key to getting these odd shifts and so forth? Yeah, it was. And it was also about um, it was about wanting it and seeking out the opportunities structurally in the various places that I was to to seek those opportunities and um, and and ask for them and keep asking when people would say no. And uh, and then when you did get an opportunity to do uh to do, I don't know, like a profile on a politician or do a two minute business news update or something like that, you do it and you do it to the best of your ability and you just keep on going and keep asking. And in this business, I have learned, and for any young people who are watching this, what you have to do if you want to be successful, other than, you know, the obvious things about being talented, work hard, read widely, be curious about other people, you have to have a pretty good view of what you want and you have to ask for it and then you have to go to where you can do what it is that you want and if you get stuck in a sort of a parallel track but you're in the state the city that you want to be in or you're near your parents or you're worried about money or all those other things especially at the early years those are not the things to worry about if if what it is that you want some years down the road is is kind of what we're doing so that having that i don't know where that I don't know. I, I don't know where that farsightedness in myself came from, other than to know that I, I was coming at it from a different angle and there were going to be no shortcuts. And I just had to work literally twice as hard as anybody else and wanted twice as much. And that's what I did. OK, why did you have to work twice as hard as everybody else? Well, lots of reasons. Um, like I said, I didn't go to journalism school. Uh, I was already working in a different industry, though it was related. Um, I didn't have the typical background that people had. and. Um, I didn't know some baseline stuff about storytelling and 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 how you how you put together a story. How do you interview someone? I didn't know some of the the, the real trade stuff that you can learn. It's a craft, just like anything else, and you can learn it over time. I had to know what I didn't know, and um, you know, I'm not going to put too fine a point on it. But 25 years ago, guys like me, there weren't a lot of guys like me. There just weren't. And my my intention, 100%, was to be the guy the number one guy and to be right up in front, not because of any, um, not, not for any other reason other than you were the best person to, to tell the story. And that was, you know, you talk about things that are hard. I'm sure at some point along the way that maybe 
hurt a few people along the way. And it's you talk about competition. There's enormous amounts of competition for that when you're in, when you're in your twenties and thirties and stuff like that. And so, so I had to kind of break through some of those barriers. And I felt many many times that I kind of wasn't breaking through because there were things that were kind of against me that were I had no control over. And now it's interesting, you know, 25 years later, you start to see the world starting to look on television, on radio, more uh, accurately reflecting the society that's out there. Not that everybody has to be a minority or a woman or some version thereof, but it's got to be a proper mix. And we're still not there, but, you know, I'm doing my little part, I think. Yeah, because especially in a city, I mean, I can walk, I live downtown uh, Chicago and I walk outside and immediately I see several different kinds of people and I hear at least three languages on the street. So yep. it's cool when the media actually reflects that. Yeah. And, um, you know, the next step is going to be really taking that sense of um, diversity and equity and inclusion and 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 taking it even to the next step. I, I, I mean, you know, I'm I like to say back in Canada, I used to like to say I'm as I'm as Canadian as hockey sticks and as uh, as Indian as 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 Nehru shirts. I used to say that all the time. It's such a dorky thing to say. But anyway, I had to really play those two things differently now that you're seeing it on the BBC, maybe you see it in other news services as well. But, you know, we need to see even more diversity. We need to see women with wearing hijab. We need to see guys with beards, you know, and, and turbans. We need to see um, we need to see white people that look like, I don't know, the average white person from Iowa and and have that just be, you know, part of this grand human family that that is helping to present the news to people. I think we need we need to have that so that we truly do get to a point where we're not, you know, surprised that somebody who looks kind of different from me today is actually talking about the things that are important to me now. But the thing is, you know, I mean, you and I are, I think we're a similar age, but the thing is, you know, back then um, there wasn't much internet and now, you know, we've got internet and apps. So do you think that fills the gap? No, no, I don't. I mean, I think that I'm sorry, but I still think TV is the king. And uh, let's face it. Look, when things start going down, people tune into tv they i know it and uh i we feel it we see it in our ratings whether it's bad weather or 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 disaster or terrorism or something completely out of the ordinary yesterday we had a horrible uh, industrial accident in lamont um yes of course people get their information from a variety of sources but this notion that somehow appointment television is gone for news or that trusted voices on something as kind of anodyne as linear television is over is not the fashion. That's not true at all. It's still about TV. And because TV brings you the immediacy, it is everywhere, it is reliable, it doesn't cost much, and and you don't have to worry about internet connections and things like that. These things may change, and they are changing over time. But it still seems to me that for so many people that if they haven't seen it on television, then it, I don't know, it didn't happen. And, and therefore, television news still plays a big role in that. But the thing is, I think that, um, you know, younger people, they'll say or people will say about younger people, they don't really watch TV. They're more into digital. And that's one of the reasons why. I mean, you're at a very good station and an excellent company. Everybody says great things about Disney. But I think when you know, you see the cuts that are made, like in smaller markets, yeah, because I went I was in St. Louis at a CBS TV station. And this guy said this room used to be full of workers and now it's not. So what about that aspect? Well, that's also a function of, of 
the basics of the cost of producing, right? And, and technology's impact. I mean, our control room used to have seven or eight people in the control room to put on a newscast. Now it's two. That's technology as much as anything else. That's a that's a business doing things more efficiently to bring more money to the bottom line. That's one thing. But as far as the actual emission of the product, yeah, you know what? Uh, news uh, newsrooms have been chasing eighteen to twenty nine year olds forever since we were 18 and 29 years old. And yeah, I don't think we watch news as much. I mean, I did because I was a nerd, but uh, other people, you know, we just didn't. And, but when people move into these different stages in life and they become more affluent and that's kind of the way things are for, they, they move into these moments, these old patterns tend to repeat themselves again. I, I will say that it's stretched out a little bit more. I'm learning my kids are, uh, in their late teens and early 20s. And and my wife and I were just saying the other day that the things that we did in our 20s and our expectations, especially for our late 20s, are going to be the things that they do in their mid to late 30s. And everything's just getting stretched out. It's a function of, of longevity, um, technology, COVID, and a whole bunch of other things. But that's that's kind of the way, that's just society in a certain way kind of evolving. And and that's where we are. So I, that being said, they're going to move into those stages where, yeah, you know what? They're going to be coming home from work and they're going to flick on the tube for for a half hour while they're having a cup of tea or maybe having a beer or getting di- dinner ready or what have you. And they're going to watch the news. Our numbers are still there. They're not what they were in the 90s or even the early 2000s, but they're still there. And we have a deep obligation to them because we know that the stickiness of our stories and the stickiness of our news in terms of their understanding of their world is as good as ever. Okay, now speaking of stickiness, do you mind if I play the infamous uh, video of your early days in Chicago? I'd rather you didn't. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, okay, so because you're known, uh, because early on in your career, something happened when you were on the air. So I'll link to it later, but... rather you didn't because it's, it's just one of those dumb things i mean look i won it i won an emmy award uh we held it together that was and, good yeah uh it was it was scary it was life and death so it's not like it was some sort of joke and and it was uh you know it was it was <laughs> it was just such a shock that what we're talking about of course is a car crashing through the straight state street studio which is right below where i'm sitting right now and it it's you know, it's it's one of those things you don't want it, that to be the only thing that you're known for. I've won nine Emmys since then. Um, I, I'm a I'm a primetime news anchor for ABC Seven. I, I prefer that people kind of look at the bigger thing. But you know, you're a storyteller, and I, I submitted to this, so you do you do what well, you no, do. I was, no, I was, I was going to say that um, what was incredible is you kept it together, and yeah. I think that was very noble because I've seen people not keep it together for very minor situations, like oh, it's raining or something's happening and they can't you know remain serious or so it was it was good anyway but that was early on in your career here you must have been like welcome to chicago yeah it was like a year in and um you know it was i'll tell you one story about it that was really weird was that it was two nights before christmas um you know a lot of people were shopping on state street and i think it was a friday night and uh there were a lot of people that are in front of that window in front of our station. And there was some weirdness that was going on outside. Like you could tell cars were whipping around and guys were doing like donuts and kind of doing circles and things like that. But it was also extraordinarily cold that night. It was very, very cold. And thank goodness, 
because it was cold, there weren't as many people in front of that window as they norm normally would be with holiday shoppers and Chris Kindle market and all that stuff just down the street. And so there was like an opening, the guy's just doing these turns and turns. And then all of a sudden, wham, it goes like right in like that. And just like my hand is going right at the camera. It was just like right at me. And I was like looking right at it and just thinking, holy moly. And then the, the thing is the glass exploded because it's, it's, um, it's safety glass and it exploded. And then the car's in there. And then there was this incredible aroma smell of, you know what a car smells like in the winter, the exhaust from the winter when it's really cold outside and it's snowy, all that air and that smoke and that, that uh, atmosphere came into the studio immediately. And then it was incredibly cold in the studio because it was cold outside. So it was really, you know, it was really, really jarring and, uh, and, and traumatic at a certain level, but yeah, I guess we held it together and we won an Emmy. Yeah. And also because you just were surprised for a second and then you threw it to a reporter and then you guys flipped the whole newscast to talk about what was going on. And it was extremely professional. And I thought, because it's ABC seven, because they do a good job. So <laughs> but, you know, okay. my, my worry also, just one last thing was like, I, the guy was still sitting in the truck. The guy was, as it turns out, he was mentally unstable. He was kind of, I don't know if he was off his meds or what have you. And uh, he was still in the truck. He was still in the van. And I'm waiting for him to like, you know, come out with a gun or, or something horrible like that. And, and I'm just keeping my eyes open going, okay, you know, what's next here? What's about to happen? I'm now in the middle of the story. Let's just calm this whole thing down. And yeah, I guess we did calm it down. And you know, that was then. We've done we've done some good things I since know. then. <laughs> yeah, it was just funny. So okay, so back to um young people getting into the business because what I've noticed about TV, okay, I don't work in TV, but now I work for a TV company. I work in radio, but um what I've noticed is okay, there are a lot of jobs in small markets. And that's what I'm always telling because I teach also, I always tell the students to go for it. But the pay is extremely bad. It's like really hard to live on. So what advice yeah, yeah. for what advice do you have for people who have to live like away from their families? They can't live at home, et cetera. Well, I think I kind of mentioned it earlier. I think you have to do it. You do have to do it. Um, you have to take the sacrifice. Sometimes you have to sacrifice for your for your art and your craft. Uh, you can make do and you will what you learn, what exposure you get, the ability to go and talk to the mayor of a small town. The ability to have personal relationships with business people who are struggling to make ends meet themselves wherever they are. That is the guts of good journalism. That is how you learn the craft. You have the ability to walk up. You're some kid from suburban Chicago and here the heck you are living in, um, in, uh, in, a, in a suburb of Omaha, Nebraska. And you, have, you think you've got nothing in common with the people that you're talking to. But in fact, you do. And that's how you have to find it. And you have to ask the questions and you have to be empathetic and you have to have a smile on your face and you have to be able to make friends and build trust. And when you do all those things and you don't have to do it forever, you're not going to be doing it for five years. You're going to move from a year to 18 months, a year to 18 months, year to, and then you'll know about the business and you'll know where you stand and you'll know whether you've got the goods to make it to Chicago or wherever it is that you want to make it uh, or you won't. And you'll still have be better for that experience. It is not about the money at the early stages. It's about the experience and you have to do it. And if you do it with sincerity and integrity, with a sense that it's kind of like, like basic training um, and you treat these people with respect, no matter where they are, no matter what their politics are, you'll get so much out of it and you'll be so much better for it and you'll be a better journalist for it. Because also what I notice is that people who are um, in the older generation, 
they were not they just did like anchor or reporter or writer or whatever it was all segmented and now the jobs are mmj multimedia journalist and so they have to people people have to do a lot more and sometimes they don't even have a camera person i'm sure you've heard about these incidents where somebody doesn't have a camera person with them and then they're injured in some way or you know it's sort of dangerous in some situations so what about people how do they get through that get through it they have to get through it i mean i don't think i think those are those are unfortunately more common stories than not but they're not apocryphal in the sense that these are some of the hazards you got to deal with i mean you want to be a firefighter you might get injured you want to be a cop you might get injured you might you know you want to be a journalist you might be in an uncomfortable spot uh, you want to be you want to be a, a finance guy for a bank uh, you might be bored out of your mind sitting in a cubicle i mean there are hazards everywhere and you just have to wonder you have to ask yourself about this business and about this um uh calling this craft if you have the guts of what it takes because it's easy to you know go for it when you're getting all the obvious uh, um, benefits and accoutrement that comes with it. But but you're only getting that because you're embodying what it's really supposed to be all about. At least that's the way I hope. And as far as how how it was structured before, where people were in certain lines, you know, producer, um, announcer, that kind of thing. That that you're right. That's that's pretty much all gone, and that's a function of technology and efficiency. And but the fact is, I think it makes for 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 better professionals in the newsroom as a result yeah because they learn different skills now let's say somebody does not get a break for some reason um what advice do you have for people if they can't get that tv job or like let's say they want to be on the air like you want to be on the air but they're not able to get in front of the camera what should they do um well they have to ask themselves why that's happening um they have to be honest with themselves as to what's what are the skills that they're working on that should get them there they if they really want it they should be able to get it and if they're not getting it where they want to get it then they have to move then they have to go somewhere else it could be who knows personality clash with a with a news director it could be it, it could be something like somebody just doesn't like you they don't like the way you look as you know sad as that may be there may be racism involved there may be sexism involved there may be just you know i I'm I, I've got one opportunity. I'm giving it to that person over there. Who knows what it is? But you have to just be nimble enough that you go to where you're going to get the opportunity that you need to have. And then you can go, you can learn, you can make mistakes, you can be confident in that regard, and you will get the benefit of the experience that will, will then propel you into your next experience. So uh, the key is if you want it, you can't get discouraged at the earlier stages. And you just got to keep wanting it and keep improving. Yeah, because there's a pattern that I've noticed with some people is, okay, first of all, we know the business is tough, but then, you know, you have to love what you do despite the business. And then some people just face some obstacles and they think I can't take this anymore. And they just get out of it. So they, it's not that they've been in it for many years. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, people quit medical school. They, I mean, these are the things, I mean, sometimes you know our life pattern isn't necessarily a straight line from here to there going up all all the way sometimes it's like that in fact most of the time it's like that and um you know my advice is to to you one thing one thing that i i seem to have done okay in my life was ask myself some really tough questions at fairly young ages and keep asking those questions about what whether this is what i wanted to do was it going the right way what do i need to learn what's where what's the checklist look like and where am i missing things because i was pretty convinced i wanted the end goal 
And when you have that kind of idea, that end goal, and you kind of can work backwards, it makes anything actually a little bit easier in one sense. At least you know where you're going. So it, it, that's just, I think that those are, those are personality issues. Those are character issues. And they're not, not like that, you know, quitting something is a lack of character. It's not. It's not for everybody. And there are a lot of very successful people who've had um, a five-year career in journalism, broadcast journalism, or what have you. It's one of those jobs, my job especially, it's one of those jobs that everybody thinks that they can do. Like they see it and they think, oh, I could do that. Oh, that looks kind of good. Those guys get paid pretty well. And those gals look like they're having a good time and blah, blah, blah. So they think they should, they think they have a right to do it. And and they forget about the, the, the work. They say that about when they see a doctor on television or a, you know, or, or, or any other number of sort of high profile uh, professions. But with this, they, they tend to. So there's that kind of prejudice in your own mind that you kind of have to deal with. And you just have to ask yourself, there's all kinds of benefits for doing this work, even for three, five years that can take you into any range of a number of other businesses and um, and not just on the communication side, but just strategy and understanding how politics works and you know, public policy and and uh, getting involved in government, getting involved on the bureaucratic side. There's there are a lot of people whose whose um, whose first five years working, you know, in in radio or something like that is what helped define why they're so smart now. Yeah, and also, um, so what do you think makes a good anchor? Because oh, you just you only do anchoring now. You don't do reporting. No, no, I report. I report. But you too. also report. Okay. So what? Okay, reporter. Well, what about like what's the difference and what makes a good anchor versus reporter? Well, I think they're the same. That you have to be completely free and clear of conflicts. You have to be. You have to be a good communicator in terms of how you speak, how how well read you are, how interested you are in the other person, and uh, it says journalism one one around those kinds of issues. But I think in terms of what makes a good anchor, I think I think trust is the number one issue. Like, do people trust what what I'm saying? That's that's the lingua franca. It's not. It's not the fancy suits. It's not the uh, it's not the the lights and the and the graphics. Although those are all fun things that are part of the presentation. But in the end, do they look at the TV and say, "Do I trust that guy?" And if I do, uh, why? And so that's something that you build up over over time. This is one of those great businesses, though, that the longer you do it, and if you do it right, the more equity you have in the business, and the more equity you have with the with the client, the customer, the viewer. The, the more likely they are to come back to you the next time and the next time and the next time. So that's kind of, you're, you're constantly building something, I think. And I think that your credibility and integrity are on the line every day in terms of how you approach a story, how you do a story, how you tell something, do it the right way. And once you have kind of a reputation for that track record, then, yeah, then, then good things start to happen. And I think the same thing applies for reporting. Reporting also as much as anchoring, but more, even more so requires a, a lot of a lot of curiosity, a lot of work behind the scenes, a lot of work developing sources. It requires tremendous amounts of personal energy. You have to be able to meld your personal life, I think, your personal life into your professional life. That's the way I live it. There, there's, there tends to be not as much of a distinction between the two. It's not like I leave the office and forget about everything. Not that I go home and just watch news all the time, but my kids are always bugging. All I do is like, oh, dad, you're driving home. Can you like stop listening to the news? You know, just whatever. So I think there has to be that kind of commitment. And anyone in any high end profession has that kind of commitment. A doctor is a doctor, a, a lawyer and a politician, um, a business person, a CEO, an entrepreneur. 
they're doing this stuff all the time. And so that's what makes you good at it because then you're, then you're on top of it. When you, when you do reporting, okay, how do you put together a story? Because I've seen the raw video that TV stations have, like they might have 15 minutes of, not, yeah, raw video. And how do you make a two-minute story out of that? <laughs> that's, that's the secret sauce, right? You got to boil it down. You got you to gotta figure out who the, what's the story, what's the focus, who are the principles that you need to talk to, where's the real answer in all this, what's the video that you, that you were able to obtain that illustrates it in television. It's, you got to write to your pictures. That's number one. Many people continually make that mistake. But, you know, what am I seeing here? And just describe what I'm seeing. It's just journalism 101. It's Edward R. Murrow's, what he did standing on the uh, U.S. Embassy rooftop in, in Germany in World War II. He's just standing there and telling people what he saw. And if you do that with integrity and you do that with technology using the video that you get, you work well with editors uh, and you boil things down and you always can say it in less time. You can always make your, your sound bites shorter as long as you stick to integrity, this, the, uh, the context is, is accurate, and, and you're getting at some semblance of the truth, whatever the truth is. Like what caused that explosion yesterday in Lamont or what's going on with Joe Biden's um, re-election campaign. Whatever you, however you perceive what is the pursuit of truth around a question, I think is a great way to frame how you're going to get inside the story and try to tell it in a way that makes an average person go, hey, I'm going to listen to this guy. Okay, but how would you define integrity? I think that it's just simply about how you, what do you think is the truth? I mean, you got to be well-read enough to have a sense of what the truth about a certain circumstances. Is somebody lying here or not? What What is the issue that's at play here? You've got to do a little homework and, and you just play it straight. And integrity means as well, doing the story as well as you can and uh, taking an extra five minutes to make sure that, you know, that sentence is just, just right. And it's just really describing that picture the way you want it to. And it leads in effortlessly into the next soundbite or what have you taking time with that craft to the extent you can, because we're all under deadline pressure um, and, and, and doing it, doing like what I say to my kids, just, you know what, anything that you do is worth your best effort. That's integrity. And if you do it like that on a day to day basis, you'll, you'll probably be pretty successful. Hmm. Okay. And then anything else? No, I just, you know, listen, I, I you know, Chicago's, I, I tell you one thing, people say, why'd you leave such a great job and come here and switch countries and all that? And I'll tell you, you know, if you're a news junkie, coming to Chicago is like, it's like uh, a thirsty person drinking out of a fire hose. It is totally exciting and totally fun. And it uh, means a lot. So it makes you think like your time is well spent. Um, are you are you bilingual in French and English? I'm, I'm when, I'm when, by Canadian standards, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say yes, but I'm obviously functionally bilingual in the sense that I, you know, I can I can get my point across. I, I, I can uh, I can understand it very well. I can read it very, very well. And, um, you know, I won't go hungry if I was in a French milieu. I could find a bathroom. And then also, do you speak an Indian dialect? Because you said your parents were immigrants. I don't, but my um, I understand one language called Kannada from uh, from the state of Karnataka in India, where like we're Bangalore Southwest side. I understand that you know, like the back of my hand. And then there's another language nearby, Marathi, from the state where Mumbai is, uh, Maharashtra, and these are big, big places. And so I understand the reason I understand that one a little bit, but the first one I understand very much more. So yeah, we grew up with like, you know, my parents could speak like. Uh, three or four languages. It was pretty cool that way. And then, then we had the whole French thing thrown at us. My one regret though, I, to be honest with you, is I 
I wish I did speak French that much better, and I'm determined that my kids get that. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.